Amen. Well, hello, everybody. How are you doing? Great to see you all here. Great to see you out there if you're watching online. So, yeah, happy Mother's Day. We, we sort of want to always celebrate women on this day. And so happy Women's Day, no matter. We recognize that not every woman is a mother and that oftentimes we can feel make people feel bad, left out. Because a lot of people have struggled through this space. And today, as we come into this place, and as you will post pictures and look at pictures online, we also must recognize that not everybody's life is picture perfect. All right? Not everybody's life is like the ideal nuclear family. And sometimes we can feel bad about that. Sometimes we can feel inadequate that our life is not enough. Sometimes we can feel inadequate that maybe we have lost a mother that maybe we have, uh, maybe that a mother has had children but now is estranged from those children for some reason. Like life is hard and it is a grind. And we come into this space recognizing that we come with our, all of us, no matter if it's whatever that is, whether that is the socially ideal or something else, it doesn't matter like we are loved. And we treasure each other, and you are doing an amazing job at this thing in life because life is so hard. So no matter where you are today, no matter what you show up into this day with, this space with, it's okay. You're loved. And so today we so love those women in your life, whether they're mothers or whether there's daughters or sisters or aunts or whatever they are, or just friends who have become family. Honor the women in your life because where they are worthy of it. I said we're <laughs> like I'm included in that. I'm not included in that. That's just like a, like a white guy, right? Include, include myself in everything. <laughs> I can't be left out at all, ever. No, you can leave me out today. It's just fine. So today I thought, hey, let's talk about um, the theological affirmation of women in Scripture. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, I thought, hey, this this would be fun, and uh, I basically thought of this, I, not this idea, but as I read scripture, I believe that you can read it in a certain way, that you could make an argument that one of the central works of scripture is to end, redeem, eliminate the hierarchy of the, 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 the sin of gender hierarchy. I believe that you can read it in a certain way that that can be one of the central themes of Scripture. Like, that's what we're going for. That's what the kingdom of God will look like, that there's no longer any gender hierarchy, no longer any sexism or any situation that would put people down, put one people up because of your of your gender and put another person down because of your gender and that the kingdom of God, the end, the, the end result will look like all equal equality across the board. So, um, that's my argument and we'll see if I make a case for it today. All right. You can, you can grade me at the end. There'll be some reviews. You'll, you'll get an email and be like, did Jason do a good job or not? Um, and yeah, no, I'm just kidding. We won't have that because good Lord, don't judge me, please. All right. So we're going to have a couple we're going to have a couple quotes today from this book, Proverbs of Ashes. The, um, the, the, this is written by a couple of women. One of them is a Methodist pastor, and the subtitle is Violence, Redemptive Suffering, and the Search for What Saves Us. It's really good. And um, I'll read a couple of that. But today we will begin. You ready? Are you all ready? You all ready? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. It's okay if you're not. 
It's all right. You're still waking up. Didn't get all your coffee in. It's all right. Maybe halfway through this, you'll be ready. But if you're ready now or not, I'm going to go. All right? I'm going to go. And we are going to begin at the beginning. We're going to begin in Genesis. And so we remember that when we read Genesis, sometimes when we come to Genesis and we read it, we think that these are firsthand like, accounts, right? We're like, Adam and Eve wrote this. <laughs> but you know they didn't, right? So, like, we're good on that. You know that Adam and Eve didn't write Genesis, like the beginning. Like, no, no, one, was, no one was there. That this is just like, this was written a long time after the creation because... Like, the, it was a creation. <laughs> Nobody was like, hey, you know what? We should record this because, like, future generations are going to wonder how all this went down. But they didn't. And so, like, this is an account of later on people were, were, were figuring out how did we get in this situation. And we've had these oral, oral stories that have been passed down to us. We have maybe this revelation from God about what was going on. But we come in this situation like our world is not as it should be, Right? And now we're gonna we're, we need to tell the story of how this all started, and so they they put their experiences, their understandings of God onto this, and they come to this creation, and they say this after the fall, right? So it was a beautiful garden. There was a there was a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they were they were chilling and they were doing whatever they do, and they ate a tree and ate of a fruit of a tree, and then like they get kicked out of the garden, right? They get kicked out of the garden, and so so here it goes. And at the result of that, it says, this is what God. So God said to the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, and cursed is a livestock. And so he, he says, like, okay, this is, this is bad. You're cursed. And then he says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Your pain will, will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened and you have done this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Though through painful toil you will eat of the, all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat the food. So, like, life is going to be hard now. So, th- so this is the first result of the sin, right? This is the first result of what happened. The first thing that happens, the first result of a, of a, of a, a marred relationship with God is that in our relationships to one another, they're going to be messed up. Like this is the result of what has happened. And what's that first thing? Like it says to the woman, your, your desire is going to be for your husband and he's going to lord it over you. Gender hierarchy. Now, like, okay, so so like we can, we can, there's two ways to look at this. One way is to look at this is to say, well, this is God-ordained gender hierarchy. I don't believe that for a second, all right? Because God is trying to undo it for the next all of it, right? That was in Genesis 3. So like for the next 1,426 pages, whatever is in that, God is trying to undo that. That's the work of God in the world. So I don't believe this is God saying like this is like I'm going to curse you. No, 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 no. This is the later on generation saying we had sin and the result of sin is that we have this messed up situation, this messed up hierarchy between human relations, between Males and females, between men and women, things are out of whack. And this is a direct result of the, the, the sin that happened, the cutting off the relationship to God. When we cut off a relationship to God, our relationships to each other get all messed up. This is the result of that messed upness. 
not God's dictate over all of creation. I'm sorry, I don't know what that sound is, but it's like a cricket in the in the microphone. I'm sorry, it's annoying. And so, like, so, so here we go, right? So that is the first thing that we see. That's the first thing that we see. Now, the rest of Scripture is trying to undo that. The rest of Scripture is trying to redeem that. And so we we see that in in like, in, so we see that in first. The first place that we see that, at least for me, is in Exodus, right? We see in Exodus. And what happens at the beginning of Exodus? Y'all know the story of Exodus? The people of Egypt were there for 400 years. They were in slavery. And the the ruler of Exodus, not Exodus, the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, makes this decree like he is mad at the at the Israelites, and they have they're like he's like there's too many of them, so they may overtake us. So what we need to do is we need to make an edict to kill all of them. So midwives, you are ordered. So he orders the midwives in this space when when a baby's born, if it's male, I want you to kill him. I want you to kill him. That's the edict that comes down here. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the kings of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let the girls live. And so here, so, so, so like, here we go, right? So we have this situation where women are sort of seen as lesser, right? In, in Genesis, that is a result of the sin. Now we are beginning to see the emergence and how women will keep alive the movement of God. How women will, so, so, so this is the Old Testament, y'all. Basically, the Old Testament is how women do what they need to be doing and how men don't. Basically, I just summed it up for you right there. The whole, not really, right? My Jewish friends would get really mad at me for that. It's a joke. I'm sorry. It's a joke. But like, like through the arc of the Hebrew scriptures, this is what we find is women standing up in disobedience, in disobedience and holy resistance to the powers of empire and destruction. Whereas oftentimes the men give themselves to it and in giving themselves to it, take on elements of violence and destruction and dehumanize themselves and those around them. They seek power. But the women so often in the Hebrew scriptures are ones that stand up to that power system. And in doing that, resist the powers of violence and destruction and open up a pathway for new life to spring up. All right, here's our first, here's our first quote. And this is, these are a little bit longer, okay? So you got you to gotta bear with me. It's going to be like second grade story time. Um, this is basically a sermon from Rebecca Parker here. It's, it's, she was a Methodist pastor in Seattle for a little while. And this is uh, an excerpt from one of her sermons. She says this, Do we really believe that God is appeased by cruelty and wants nothing more than our obedience? It becomes imperative that we ask this question when we examine how theology sanctions human cruelty. You know, a big part of theology, right, 
Like we we have theology, and one of the streams of theology is this idea that God punished Jesus, that that God killed His only Son, right? Like so. So a couple things. This is a sidebar. This is for free. I won't charge you for this. But but basically, like we have this theology, like God's only Son, right? But you know, right? Like like this is this is just figurative language. You know, this is just figurative language to try to help us to understand the relationship between Jesus and God. I have a son, Luke. He's my firstborn son. He is 17. He'll be 18 soon, and which is hard to believe because I don't feel like I should have an 18-year-old. But, you know, that's, that's beside the case. But he is my first son. He is my only son. This is not like Jesus' relationship to God. God didn't hook up with somebody and have a baby and was like, hey, this is Jesus. We'll name him Jesus. Hey, hey, here we go. It's not like that, okay? It's not like that. Jesus here is the representative on earth of God, the revelation of who God is. And so when we say God's first son or only, only son, what we mean is what they meant at the time was God's reflection God's representative on earth, not actually a biological child, right? Okay, got that? And so so sometimes like we, we have this theology that God put Jesus on the cross, that God made Jesus be crucified. And so we have almost like this theology of child abuse. Like we are offering as a sacrifice to the, the hu- humans. Like, like why would it be? Like why would that, why would it be that God can't figure out another way to redeem humans except through violence, except through, like, death. Like, this is the thing that God is against throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history. God is against violence. Violence does not exist within God because God is love. So violence can't exist within the character of God. So God never operates through the means of violence ever because that would be anti-God, and so therefore that would be anti-love. And so, like, but sometimes we get into these weird theologies where we believe in redemptive violence. We believe that redemption can only come through violence. But it's, that's, that's, that's not the way God works. And so we have to critique our idea of violent theology. If God is imagined as a fatherly torture, earthly parents are also justified, perhaps even required, to teach through violence. Children are instructed to understand their submission to pain as a form of love. Behind closed doors in our own community, spouses and children are battered by abusers who justify their actions as necessary. Loving discipline. I only hit her because I love her. I'm doing this for your own good. The child or the spouse who believes that obedience is what God wants may put up with physical or sexual abuse in an effort to be a good Christian. Theology that defines virtue as obedience to God suppresses the virtue of revolt. A woman being battered by her husband will be counseled to be obedient as Jesus was to God. After all, Eve brought sin into the world by her disobedience. A woman submits to her husband as she submits to God. Some will say that absolute obedience to God doesn't carry danger because God is good and does not ask us to be violent. But this defense requires us to be certain that we are always right in understanding what God asks of us. We are fallible. The Bible, some argue, provides an infallible revelation of the will of God. But the Bible is a complex, multi-voiced document. Its teachings can be harmonized only by imposing onto the Bible a uniformity that is not in the text itself. There is no simple revelation of God's will. 
We have to accept responsibility for our interpretations. Obedience is not a virtue. It is an evasion of our responsibility. Religion must engage us in the exercise of our responsibility, not teach us to deny the power that is ours. A God who punishes disobedience will teach us to obey, obey and endure when it would be holy to protest and righteous to refuse to cooperate. Revolt can be holy. It is often righteous to revolt against the powers that destroy our humanity, against the powers that destroy our ability to see one another as just and justified and good and beautiful. The midwives, the first element of, of, of women in this holy revolt in the Hebrew scriptures is a group of women who refused to live by the edicts of the ruler who said our responsibility to love our responsibility to protect the vulnerable is more important than our obedience to that ruler up there. And so they show us and they begin to pave a pathway. The midwives in Egypt pave a pathway for us to begin to understand that God often works through the holy revolt and the holy resistance and the holy persistence of those who believe that there is a better way, that there is a different way than violence, a way of love, a way of protection, a way of nurturing. And it is exactly through the actions of these midwives that it allows Moses to be born. If they had followed the rules, if they had followed the edicts, then Moses would have not been born because he was a male child. He would not have been born. And so we have this whole redemptive story. God's whole redemptive story hangs on the revolt of a group of women who refused to do violence and harm the vulnerable. Later on, we come to this story in Joshua. We find another story of a, of a woman here in the story of Joshua. Now the people of Israel had gone out. They had been set free. God had delivered them. And now they are on the brink of, of, of a new land. And there was spies that go out and trying to figure out who's out there, what dangers are out there. And I know all of this is is, is centered, and we have all sorts of questions about what, what what's going on here. There's a lot of violence in the, in the, in these scenes, and like, does God sanction that? Does God uh, uh, want that? Like, what is going on? And, and those are great questions and 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 thoughts. And we need to have those conversations. And I think I've done I've done some of that. I'd love to have that conversation with you. But here in this moment, these spies go out and they meet. This woman, their lives are in danger. They are in a, in, a, in a foreign town, and they have been seen, so to speak. And they come to this woman who was a prostitute, and they say, and they, they say um, our lives for your lives. The woman says, hey, I'll help you get out of this situation because I know God is with y'all. I know God is with you. And the spies say to her, our lives for your lives, the man assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. 
She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return. Now the men said to her, this oath you made will not be binding unless we have the land and you tie a scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Here is another woman who is defying the powers, who is seen as an outcast, one who is marginalized, one who is on the edges of the world, and God is working through this woman yet again and again and again. These are the stories that come before us. The next one we find is in Ruth. Here in Ruth, you you might know the story of Ruth. You probably know her name maybe, but maybe you don't know the full story. But here, Ruth had a, had a mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi lost her husband. And now when you lived in this situation, in this land, if you, if you were a widow, you were in a hard situation because you didn't have the power to go out and to create wealth for yourself. And this Ruth was one of her daughter-in-laws, and she says, hey, go out. Go out and find a new way for yourself. But Ruth says, no, 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 no. I'm going to stay with you. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave or turn back where I will go. And so I will go where you go. I'm so sorry, it's windy. I will go where you go, and I will stand where you stand, and I will stay where you stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates me from you. When Naomi realized that Ruth had determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so here, Ruth was, was, could have gone out and to make a new life for herself, but she refuses. She stands up to what, was, like what she needs to do. She stands with responsibility, and she said, Naomi, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be with you. And through this story, through this, through this faithfulness of one person to another person, Redemption happens, and we are told the story that, that they, they, they are, they're given to, a, to another a, a redeemer, so to speak. A, 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 they meet Boaz, and Boaz comes and says, hey, I'll take care of you. And, and they are, <clears throat> I'm realizing as I'm talking about this, this is a weird story because it puts the, the man as a sort of redeemer of the women, but that's not the story. The story is here that the, the women and their faithfulness to one another allowed for them to stay alive long enough allowed for them to God to, to move in a new way here. And so the work is continued. Later on, we find in Esther, you know the story of Esther. Maybe you probably, maybe you've never read the story of Esther, but, but, but you know this, right? You know this scene. For such a time as this, all right? That's what, that's what someone tells to Esther. For such a time as this, you have been put in this situation. Esther was the queen of the Babylonian king. And she was one of the many wives of this Babylonian king. And she was part of the, I, I don't want to get into what she was part of. She was part of the, the harem, so to speak, the, 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 the wife harem. And she would come before the king when the king would summon her. And you, you know what that's for, right? I don't have to go into detail for that. You know what that's for in ancient culture. But here in this situation, she was Jewish. And the Jews were under threat. There was a plot against the Jews to kill them all in the land, in, the ba- in, the, in, in all the land, because the leaders of the Babylonians didn't want them. And so they find out about this plot. And the, one of the Jews whose family to Esther comes and says, Esther, you have to go before the king. You have to tell him this story. You have to plead for us. And Esther's like, 
I can't do that. I'll be killed. They'll kill me if I do that. You can't just go to the king and say, even his wife, I, I just can't go to the king and say to him, hey, listen, I need you to listen to me. I can't do that. But Esther did it. She put down her own self, her own life in order to save her people. And, and, and it says this, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She stands up for what is right for her people. Eve, she is standing up against the rules, standing up against the rules of the empire in order to save her people. And she does, and she is successful. And she saves the whole Jewish people from destruction here. And so we see this story again and again and again of the holiness of revolt and the willingness of women throughout history to stand up against the oppressive forces, to stand for those that they love, and in that space, create redemption, create hope, create holiness. And maybe the, the story that we are most familiar with, the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when news comes to her that she will bear a son and the son will be the redeemer of the world, what does she say? This is her song. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit gives rejoice in my, in my Savior for God has been mindful of the humble servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy extends to those who fear God from generation to generation. God has performed mighty deeds with God's arm. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Abraham and God's descendants forever, just as God are, has promised our ancestors. She stands up and sings a song of revolt, y'all. This is not just a song of like, oh, wow, this will be amazing. We're going to have a savior. No, she stands up and sings a song of revolt that says, those who have oppressed us now will meet God and will come face to face with the destruction that they have cast on us. Later on in the story at the end, which we read just a couple weeks ago at Easter, we are reminded that the first people on the scene after the, after the resurrection, before the resurrection, after the crucifixion, were women. And Mary Magdalene goes and finds Jesus at the empty tomb, resurrected. And the message is given to her, go and tell the disciples. You know, some, I saw this online the other day. It's like, you know, some, some church traditions teach that women cannot be preachers or pastors or leaders, right? Because Jesus chose only men to be the disciples. But if we follow that logic, like Jesus tells the woman, Go tell the men this good news. And so maybe it should just be women who go out and spread the good news everywhere if we follow this logic, right? Like maybe only women should be pastors because Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, go out and 
proclaim this good word to everyone, everywhere, to the disciples. You see, this message of Scripture moves from here in the beginning of Genesis. We have this messed up situation where, where because of the result of a marred relationship with God, through choosing our selfishness over each other, we move into the situation where the consequences of that are a hierarchy, are a cruelty against one another, are a sort of gender out of balanceness. But throughout the story of Scripture, we find God working in and through. Yes, man, I didn't share that today. Yes, man, God is working through men, but we don't need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded how God is at work through women in this world. And if it weren't through the holy resistance of women to stand up against the powers of empire and destruction, we would not have this message to share today. We would not have the message of Jesus to share today. And so we need to be reminded to live in that space as we have seen our ancestors before us, the women ancestors before us, who stood up in the face of empire and violence and said, there's a better way. There's a different way, the way of love. As I finish, I want to read this to you. This is maybe brings it all together in some sense. This is our second excerpt from this book. As valuable as social gospel is, it does not hold all that religion needs to be able to hold. It fails to take into account that in a woman's life, the central sin may not be selfishness. It may be just the opposite, a lack of a sense of self. Women are culturally conditioned to care for others, but not ourselves. We believe that having needs, feelings, ambitions, or thoughts of our own is not good. In this self-abnegation, we enact a culturally prescribed role that perpetrates sexist social structures. The needs and thoughts of men matter, but not ours. Christian theology presents Jesus as the model of self-sacrificing love and persuades us to believe that sexism is divinely sanctioned. We are tied to the virtue of self-sacrifice only by hidden social threats of punishment. We keep silent about rape. We deny when we are being abused, and we allow our lives to be consumed by the trivial and the preoccupation with others. We never claim our lives as our own. We live as though we were not present in our bodies. But when we aren't present in our bodies, our closest relationships can become empty. In sexual intimacy, our husband or lover may feel he is embracing an absence. We ourselves may feel we don't really exist. Intimacy ceases to being a joy and becomes an artic unarticulated loss. The Bible suggests that sexism marks the fall of humanity. Exile from the Garden of Eden, of Eden Adam and Eve are cursed with the loss of mutuality. Women will experience their sexuality as a source of pain, and men will lord it over them. Primordial estrangement from God is manifest in social systems of dominance and submission. We don't need to be saved from the wrath of God or from the sin of selfishness. We need to be saved from the gender socialization that teaches women to abdicate selfhood and teaches men to depend on the service of subordinates. The dynamic of dominance and submission in human relationships is the heart of sin. What will save us from this? 
Does Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross end dominance and submission? No. Jesus' crucifixion was a consequence of domination, not its cure. An oppressive system killed him to silence him and to threaten others who might follow him. Domination still operates in our world and has left many lives bereft of intimacy and joy. This morning, as we make an effort, an intentional change of life, what might we say? I mean, that's what, that's what this is for. We don't come to church just to maybe get a little lift, and that's good, right, if we do. But we come to church to examine ourselves, to examine the social structures that we have been a part of, the oppressive social structures that we have been part of, maybe unbeknownst to us, that we now will examine. We come to church to look deeply at ourselves and deeply at our neighbor. And as we come to this table, we come with a sense of willingness to change, a willingness to say, I repent, a willingness to say, I was wrong, a willingness to say, Jesus, I will follow you and I will leave this thing behind today. We live in a world that does not value women. Yes, we gather together and we make a big celebration on Mother's Day. But many mothers face the reality today that they can't take off work because they can't make enough money in order to supply for their newborn child. And we live in a society that would choose to put money to drop bombs on foreign nations than we would. And we refuse and we argue and we deny basic health care to women in need, maternity leave to women who've had babies. We don't value women in our society. And that is a shame and needs to change. We live in these social dominant systems where men have rules and they rule as if everyone else is subordinate. And just as she said, we see the result of that in women and little girls growing up and believing that their purpose is to serve a man. I do not teach my girls this because that is not their purpose. Their purpose is to go out and live their best life, to be compassionate and kind, and if necessary, to rule the world. (laughs) That is what I teach my little girls. Don't serve me. Don't meet or bend to my needs just because I am a man. Understand yourself. Understand the value of yourself. You are valuable and you are good, and don't let anybody ever put you second because you are first. And so we come to this space today because a lot of Christian theology has taught that women are not worthy, that men are the worthy ones, and women are not so much. A lot of Christian theology has perpetrated the idea of gender hierarchy. It is a lie, and it does nothing but damage. It creates the people who think that they're second and only can get their value in serving someone else who is different from them. That is not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture in Acts that we are reminded of when the church 
comes into being in the fullness that we now experience. That in the in Acts it says this in the last days, which is now, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, which means preach the gospel. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on your servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit to all people. The result of the spirit of God, the result of the crucifixion and resurrection of the coming of the kingdom of the spirit being unleashed on the world. The result of that is an undoing of the garden of Eden and undoing of the social hierarchy of the result of sin. And now in this kingdom of God, there is only mutuality. There is only justice. There is only equality for God's spirit is on all people, both men and women. And I would even argue those like, like this is the language that they had, but this is not exclusionary to others. Like to, this means to all people, whether you identify as a man or a woman or, or not, it's all people everywhere. We're all equals y'all. And so let's fight for each other. Let's defend each other. Let's treat each other that you and I are on equal footing and that you are not here to serve me and I am not here to serve you, but we are here to serve each other in mutuality and love and grace and mercy. And so today, maybe we need to repent of some of the structures that we have lived into. Maybe today we need to repent of how we haven't valued others as much as we should. Maybe today we need to repent of seeing someone else as subordinate to us. Maybe today we need to re-examine the ways that we interact with our little girls and even that in our little boys. For how are we teaching our little boys to treat other people? And so today, may we live into this way of Jesus. May we live into this justice, this equality, this hope of the kingdom of God where all people everywhere had the spirit of God poured out on them where all people everywhere are equal, are worthy of justice and mercy and hope. As we come to this table today, let's examine our hearts. Let's examine our lives and let us live, not just today, not just on Mother's Day, not just at church, but let us live in a celebration of all people, which means that we need to do the hard work each other to with each other and in the world of creating a world where our children can grow up in mutuality in equal justice without social and gender hierarchy that is a vision for the kingdom of god as we prepare our hearts for this table for this space let's pray together lord god we give you thanks for your message of scripture And in this moment, as we hear those words and those words rattle in our hearts and our souls, Lord, help us to deal with them in whatever way that we are, we will. Help us to engage them, to examine them, to allow those words to do their work in our lives. That we would not just leave here today unchanged, but we would leave here today in thought. Maybe we agree, maybe we disagree, maybe this is a lot, maybe this is so refreshing, whatever that space that we come to today. We pray that we would come to this table 
that we would open our hearts and receive the forgiveness that you have given us and the calling to be this people in this world, a people of justice, a people of mutuality, a people of love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.